so I've just inherited, not, not inherited. Um, so there's this set of china and my husband's grandmother gave it to us for our wedding. It was like our wedding present. And it's this beautiful white china with um, like this gold rim around the edge. It's like a German china Rosenthal, I think it's called. So she gifted that to us for the wedding. And I never took all of it home. I just assumed that I had all of it because I had, you know, like a box of plates and a box of bowls. And she would keep saying like, oh, you never got the china. And I just thought I did. So I was like, yeah, Nana, no, I, I got it. And it turns out that there's so, so much more. There's so many little pieces that goes to the set. And I was looking up, I'm like, do you even eat off of China? Like, do you, how do you, how do you eat off of China? And it was basically like, yeah, it's a plate. You can eat off of it. And like so many people use it only for special occasions, but you should use it. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like I should use it. We used it for the wedding and like hardly for anything else. I think over the lifetime of these dishes, like these dishes have not had a food life. So my husband and I have been doing this thing where we're just going to eat whatever it is that we're eating off of these China dishes. They're going to just be like our, like um, not our go-to, but the most ridiculous things that we can think of to juxtapose against these China dishes. So we've had like chili dogs and like just the most, you know, ridiculous, greasy, soupy, saucy, fatty stuff that you can have and have it on a china dish. But you know, if you're gonna do something, do it. If you're gonna have something, use it. So I am helping these china plates and dishes and bowls and things just live their full little china life. So uh, so that's what I've been up to. This is Supernatural Movie Machine, where we talk about supernatural movies. I'm your host, Sasha Keo. If you like this content, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast and follow me on social media. Uh, visit SashaKeo.com for much more content and feel free to message me if you have a movie suggestion or want to chat about writing movies or whatever. Today we are talking about The Craft. The Craft is the dark underside of the 90s clueless hype. It's edgy supernatural teens before Twilight came along and made everyone expressionless, bloodless, and glittery. It's mean girls with tarot cards. It's the grit of real anxieties paired with the fantasy of unlimited power. It's leather and lipstick and bad girl shit. Get in, loser. We're gonna go call the corners. The Craft is a 101-minute R-rated horror film from 1996. It's directed by Andrew Fleming, who has directed other movies and shows, none of which I've seen. Uh, you might know him as the director of Emily in Paris, or Emily in Paris, as I guess was the idea. Uh, the controversially bad, famously terrible, at least on YouTube, Netflix show about a pushy, dumb, self-centered American who travels to Paris for an internship she's unqualified for and wins the hearts and meat baguettes of several French persons. I've heard it's really a case of lazy writing, but that, that's not what I'm getting into today and never. Uh, the craft is generally well-received, and I would really expect nothing more or less from this range of reviews. Supernatural thriller teen horrors are probably not most people's cups of tea, uh, especially not in the 1990s. That being said, the craft holds up. Because they're gothy witchy chicks, the fashion hasn't entirely aged. Even the soundtrack still really kicks ass. Then again, I'm a 90s kid, so I could be a bit biased. 
It's got a 6.4 out of 10 on IMDb, 57% Rotten Tomato score, a 55% Metacritic. It's not bad. Uh, but full disclosure, this is one of my favorite movies. It's on my list of movies that put me in a very specific cozy nostalgia cocoon. One day I'll talk about what the rest of these movies are, but when I drew up my list, I noticed some very strong shared themes. My favorite movies have strong female leads, violence, romance or attraction to a bad guy, women working together slash sisterhood, and magic. The craft checks all of those boxes. The official synopsis is, Sarah has always been different. So as the new girl at St. Benedict's Academy, she immediately falls in with the high school outsiders. But these girls won't settle for being powerless misfits. They have discovered the craft, and they are going to use it. The tagline, which I think is great, is welcome to the witching hour. In addition to the main metaphors of the craft, as we go along, I'll also be discussing the structure of the story and how the plot points are set up and paid off. Um, so as far as the metaphors, if you were to ask what the craft is about, a lot of answers you'd get are A, girl power, which is 90s for female empowerment, or B, toxic friend groups. And while yes, also no. Uh, for me, I'm going with option C, trauma. The craft is about trauma and the positive and negative ways it can be processed. So the first part of our story is the introduction. This is where we take care of exposition, characterization, motives, all within whatever is considered the normal context of the world. The craft sets the tone with a pre-credit drop scene of three young women doing a ritual. We transition to the real beginning of the narrative with the snake guy incident. Sarah is downstairs in this huge Los Angeles house unpacking moving boxes. It's obvious that they just moved in. An apparently homeless guy just walks into their house. He's holding a big snake and offers it to her, says he found it out back. Her dad scares snake guy away and kills the snake. At school, Sarah sticks out a bit. She's new and doesn't have a uniform and seems a little nervous about everything, but confident enough to just give it a go. She doesn't know it yet, but there's another group of girls who stick out as much as she does. The three of them walk down the hallway and everyone gives them a wide berth, like avoiding them like the plague. One of them is black. One of them seems super shy, like she's hiding her face in a book and drowning in an oversized jacket. And the third, walking in the very center, looks like if fuck off or a person. Classic schoolgirl goth aesthetic, black eyeliner included. Three dude bros, before there were dude bros, are at their lockers and two of them make a point to like mock her with a scary bitch alert. The third stays aloof. You don't know it yet, but you've just met almost everyone of note in the movie. The shy one notes that the almanac predicts the arrival of something and suggests hopefully that maybe it's their fourth. They need four to call the corners north, south, east, and west. The black girl agrees that it would complete their circle. Luckily, in what seems to be one of the first classes of the day, the shy girl witnesses Sarah doing magic at her desk. She's like zoned out and focusing on her pencil, making it stand on its tip and rotate. Straight up magic. The shy girl gives a weirdly audible gasp, like, <gasps> and Sarah snaps out of it. 
in the next class, which she also has with Sarah, even though the school looks huge, but whatever. The shy girl tells her two friends that like she's here, it's someone to be the fourth. Sarah then like walks right up to them and asks if she can partner up with them as a lab group and they just stare at her. So Sarah leaves thinking that it's just some mean girl shit. At lunch, we meet the aloof dude bro. He was also in that first class with Sarah. He just didn't see the magic part. His two clown friends were being clowns to Sarah too and he wanted to apologize for them. Sarah tells him that you are who you hang with, which considering how the rest of the movie goes is basically hitting a theme home with a hammer. Um, but aloof dude bro, his name is Chris, and he gives us our expository introduction of the three girls. Sarah mentions that they've been rude to her, and he warns her right away to stay away from them, that they're witches. We get a little backstory here filtered through Chris's perspective. The classic fuck off goth chick is a major slut, not that he would know from experience, and the shy girl has burns all over her body, and the black one, well, he, he doesn't say anything about her, as if she's not even there. Which you'll notice as we go along is its own recurring theme, whether they meant to do it or not. After school, the witches catch Sarah watching Chris at football practice. They call her out on it because it's lame and do the get in loser, we're going shopping routine. We learn their names too. Uh, the shy one is Bonnie, the black one is Rochelle, and fuck off is Nancy. Nancy warns Sarah about Chris, that he's a disease-spreading jerk, and that she speaks from experience. Bonnie points out self-harm scars on Sarah's wrists. Uh, Sarah admits to what they are, and the girls accept it without any prying questions. They go to a supremely perfect, cozy, witchy books and supplies store. This is still kind of a fantasy of mine, to like live in a walkable city with mixed-use housing where you can stay in the top floor of an apartment of the bookshop that you run. It would smell like incense, oils, and coffee, and have soft music playing. Somewhere between the shelves, there'd be like a cat with a little bell on his collar. A breeze would pass through from time to time, pushing the door open like a visitor. Come sit for a while, you'd say to no one as you opened another shipment of books that you can't wait to put on the shelves. You're not rich, but the ends meet enough for you to live a good life. You love what you do and have time for yourself, your family, and the world around you. Anyway, this is that kind of bookshop. In the back of the shop, there's a section that's curtained off. Sarah reaches to draw back the curtain, but the shopkeeper stops her, firmly. This woman is the real deal. Sarah, unlike her friends, isn't going on a shoplifting spree, so the shopkeeper already appreciates that because the other three steal and she knows it. And I want to point out that Sarah gets a hardback journal, three or four candles, and a book on how to use candles, all for $20. The shopkeeper suggests to Sarah that she might be a natural witch, uh, someone with power from within, someone who doesn't have to study the way that other witches do. Sarah seems a little dazed by that suggestion, but it's getting dark and she has a long walk home through the city that she's new to. So it's dark, and the sidewalk is crowded with homeless people, people begging for money, basically all of the stuff no one wants to have to deal with on a walk home. It's tense, Bonnie tells Sarah to look straight ahead and not talk to anybody. It's here on the dark sidewalk along this busy street that we meet the inciting incident, or the thing that gets the rest of the story rolling. It's a separation from the introduction where everything was normal, and now that's all gonna change. Because the snake guy is back. He's one of the huddled masses on the sidewalk, and he and Sarah recognize each other. And he's got another snake. 
He's stumbling after her, trying to tell her that she needs to listen to this dream he had about her. In the dream, she was dead. Sarah races across the street, dodging traffic, and Snake Eye follows. Only, he's walking too slow, and the cars are coming too fast. The three girls on one side of the street look at him, and Sarah from the other side also looks. They have like a spidey sense moment, then wham. Snake Eye gets absolutely nailed by a taxi. The shot is crazy. The back tire of the taxi just goes over the Snake Eye's head. There's no question that the Snake Eye is dead. The girls run away, crash landing in a nearby park on some very questionable, very public abandoned couches. This confirms it. Sarah's the one. She's the fourth. With her, they can call the corners. They can make things happen. Now they can call on Manon, and maybe he'll listen. It's explained to Sarah that Manon is older than the concept of God and the devil. Manon is the universe. It's nature itself. Which, yeah, is cool and all. But if that's the case, then maybe Manon wouldn't be like a he. Manon would probably be more of a they situation. But this is 1996, and maybe Manon doesn't give a fuck what you call him because that's a human contrivance and Manon is comparable to an eldritch god. Sarah is in shock over the whole thing, realizing that, yeah, maybe she's a natural witch. She starts describing all of these instances of her wishes coming true, things that show she's naturally gifted. Nancy is skeptical, and as Sarah goes on and on about it, even though the stories are about how her wishes backfire, like a pipe bursting when she wants it to rain, or going deaf when she wanted it to be quiet, Nancy starts to seem a bit jealous or mean-spirited. She tells Sarah that if she can do all that, then why doesn't she invoke the spirit? As in, call Manon into her body and let him fill her with his power. Nancy says that he takes everything that's gone wrong with your life and he makes everything better again. Sarah balks at the thought. Nothing makes everything all better again, she says. Taking that personally, Nancy sneers. Well, maybe not for you. Her mood soured and weirded out, Sarah leaves the girls and goes home. Let's categorize the next few scenes as everything that's gone wrong with your life. Here's where we get more backstory on our characters and their individual internal motivation. It's the difference between what they want as a coven, to have a fourth to call the corners and make things happen, and what they each want for themselves. It's such a great place for it too, we're already hooked by the introduction and the inciting incident. Some interesting shit is about to happen, so now we fill in the outlines of our characters while at the same time transitioning from a point where things are okay to a point that leaves everyone worse off than where they were. All of these situations act as setups that the plot can and should pay off. Starting with Sarah. After pushing away from the witches, she decides that she's going to hang out with Chris. He's the only other person we've seen her interact with, so she hasn't been making any friends. This hangout is so full of red flags. She barely knows this guy. She's out with him in a secluded area where there aren't many other people around. He's talking shit about the other witches, like about how their heads are weird. They kiss, even though this is like the second time they've spoken. And when his friend leaves, he tells Sarah to come with him to his house since no one's there. Not asks, tells. Sarah straight up tells him, no, I don't want to do that. I have to go home. She doesn't want him to be mad, which, no, he, he doesn't have the right to be mad. No one does. But she obviously likes him. She just didn't want to have sex with him on their literal first ever hangout. But he's got this stunned look, and you can tell he feels some kind of way about it. 
Nancy's the one that tells Sarah the next day that Chris has spread an awful rumor about her, that not only did she sleep with him, but that she was the lousiest lay he'd ever had. Rochelle tells Sarah that Chris had said the same thing about Nancy, who reminds Sarah that she told her that he was a jerk. Next, we find out that Rochelle has a goddamn bully. It's Marsha Brady, and she's racist as hell. They're on the same swim team, and Marsha, Marsha, Marsha does not pass up an opportunity to antagonize Rochelle. She picks a hair out of her brush and says, gross, it's a pubic hair. Oh wait, that's just one of Rochelle's little nappy hairs. Bitch, damn. Rochelle flat out asks why she's doing that. Marsha says that she, quote, doesn't like Negroids and just walks out with her little friend giggling behind her. Bitch, damn. It's funny because when I was a kid, I thought she was like this caricature of racism, but now I think that with her good looks, beautiful blonde hair, and that attitude, she could be a congresswoman. Remember the hair, by the way, it's essential. Bonnie is undergoing treatment to remove her scars. They say it's experimental, but minimally invasive, which I hope so burn scars? Like, they aren't fresh, so it's not like a grafting situation. Anyway, this machine they're using, Bonnie lies down in it like a massage chair, and the rest of it is basically like a robotic tattoo arm, meaning that there's a giant needle that's going to prick her over and over again, but not like the buzz of a tattoo gun. I guess it's more like a sewing machine without any thread. Just a big, sharp needle pricking her skin at an increasing speed. All the while, the doctors are telling her, okay, don't move, you have to stay still. Like, what the fuck? Why isn't she sedated or something? Like, where's the, the skin numbing cream? Then there's Nancy. Her family is literally the trailer trash stereotype. She lives in a trailer that has a leaky roof and flickering lights with her shit-faced drunk mother and her sleazy stepfather. And so our characters are motivated and Sarah reunites with them. Next, we're moving on to The Escalation, Phase 1, Setups and Payoffs, aka The Action. It's been established that once they get a fourth, they'll call the corners, which is the ritual shown in the opening credits. Sarah initiates into the coven, and in a ritual in the park, they call the corners. They construct a spell, each of them speaking their desires. These are plot setups, as well as pinpoints that show how all of them are dealing with their internal motivation. Rochelle asks to not hate others, even if they hate you and they're pieces of bleach blonde shit like Marsha Brady. Sarah asks to love herself and to let herself be loved by others, especially Chris. Which, I, I hate this. I really do. But it's not unrealistic. She's in high school. It's just kind of pathetic. Bonnie wishes to be beautiful outside as well as in. And Nancy wishes for all the power of Manon. Those are the setups. So, how do they pay off? Well, almost immediately, Chris is completely enthralled. He starts to follow Sarah around. He wants her approval. He wants to do anything she wants. He just wants to be near her. Next, they double down on Rochelle's spell. They often have slumber parties where they just hang out, do a little magic, light a few candles, and you know, girly witchy stuff. Sarah managed to snatch out some of racist Barbie's hair, 
and they use it to cast another spell. She's reading out of a book as she's doing it, presumably following some recipe, but she's tying the blonde hair onto a lock of Rochelle's hair. Shortly after, Marsha's hair starts falling out in clumps, like sloughing off with her swim cap. As for Bonnie, that procedure completely worked. Her scars fall off the way dried Elmer's glue peels away when you spread it over your palm, let it dry, then try to get it all off in one piece. That, that also might be a 90s kid thing. I don't know anymore. I do wonder in universe if just Bonnie's procedure works or if the spell works for the procedure in general. Like, it would suck if other girls like Bonnie are gonna get needled in their back by a giant sewing machine and the scientists are gonna be like, why did it work so well in this one case but 0% in literally every other trial? That would, that would suck. Uh, Bonnie blossoms immediately and they all have a newfound sense of confidence and camaraderie. Their beliefs have been validated. Uh, the original cult got what they wanted and Sarah now understands her gift a bit more and has friends to share it with. Rochelle and Bonnie completely attribute this all to Sarah, but not Nancy, because Nancy isn't getting what she wants. Rochelle briefly, kind of ditzily, suggests that Nancy doesn't want to be white trash anymore, but that she should just deal with the fact that she's white, which is a very 90s token black character thing to say, I think. But still, there's zero change for Nancy until she goes home and kills her stepfather. The sleazeball groped Nancy, then insulted her mother. He was on the verge of beating her mother when Nancy screams in rage. The power goes out, stepdad has a heart attack, and dies. If that wasn't good enough, it turns out that he had some kind of policy. One that paid out $175,000 to Nancy and her mom, which is a life-changing amount of money. In today dollars, accounting for an average inflation rate of 2.36%, with 2022 having an inflation rate of 8.54%, that's $320,670.49. That's a lot of money. Enough for them to get out of the trailer park and into a beautiful apartment and new clothes. So now we enter the escalation phase two, rising stakes. Things are looking up for our coven. Everyone's got what they asked for and their abilities seem to be growing. Sarah shows them a new trick, glamour. With magic, they can create realistic illusions. But with these great powers comes great responsibility and higher stakes. The shopkeeper provides the coven with some guidelines as they travel through this part of their journey. Magic is neither good nor bad. Good or bad is in the heart of the witch. A spell can't be undone. It's a force that's released, and it has to run its course. And whatever you send out, you get back times three. And for the low, low price of $25, Nancy buys a book on how to invoke the spirit. The shopkeeper is surprised. She says that's only for very experienced witches. But it's also like... You sell it here, though. It was just like here on the table. The title of the book is Invoking the Spirit. It just doesn't seem like it's a secret or a protected thing. I think that it would have been better story-wise if they'd just been talking about Invoking the Spirit and the shopkeeper overheard them, but that's okay. $25 is $25. With the shopkeeper's rules as a dire warning, the coven presses on. Nancy still hasn't gotten her wish. She wants to invoke the spirit. In a beautiful beach ritual, which 
I'd like to have friends that called me up and were like, hey, you want to go call on the eldritch god by the fire on a beach? We're wearing black. They invoke the spirit. When they wake up the morning after the ritual, Nancy is literally walking on water. Tons of sea creatures have beached themselves, having thrown themselves to their deaths overnight, a sacrifice to Nancy, who is now inhabited by Manon's power. Sarah freaks right the fuck out and thinks that they should consider their actions and stop what they're doing. She is realizing that, like her other spells, these are also turning out to be monkey's paws. As a side note, a monkey's paw is when a wish is granted, but the repercussions of that wish being granted are overall negative, even though what you wanted would have been a positive to you. Sarah's spell is already starting to backfire. Chris is obsessed with her now, to the point of stalking. She accuses Bonnie of having turned into a conceited narcissist since she became beautiful, and uh, Rochelle is still there, and now Nancy has gone crazy with power. Nancy asks Sarah if she's in or out. Sarah doesn't want out, but she doesn't want to be another unquestioning follower the way Rochelle and Bonnie are. Later, Rochelle sees Marsha Brady crying in the girls' locker room. Uh, Marsha's almost bald now. Her scalp is a tender-looking mess. She cries, what did I do to deserve this? Which makes me think that she didn't learn anything. She's asking this to the girl she called a Negroid. Maybe it's a why are you doing this to me kind of thing, but it really comes off as a hypothetical, like why, Greek chorus, would this harm befall me, the racist? Rochelle gives this look to a mirror that I used to think meant that she felt bad because she looks at her reflection and the reflection instead of looking back at her also looks away. I used to think that that was shame, but really watching now, I think Rochelle is just having the first twinge of worry that what if this does come back times three? Speaking of not learning lessons, Sarah had a fight with the girls, so what does she do? goes and talks to fucking Chris. Chris, who is obsessed with her. He's desperate for her. Quote, I have to be alone with you. I have to see you. I don't know why. Why are you being this way? It's just dinner, he begs. Come on. He coerces her into going out with him. Just so many red flags. Chris drives Sarah out to a remote road and pulls over. They talk for a bit and then Sarah asks, aren't we supposed to go to a restaurant? Then Chris tries to rape her. Luckily, she was in the field over from Rochelle's home. Rochelle, who evidently lives alone because why else would the teenage daughter of the family be the one to open the door in the middle of the night? There's no peephole or nothing. Or maybe it's because it's 1996. But in no time at all, the witch squad is all there for support and Nancy is out for blood. Nancy stalks over to the house party Chris is sure to be at. She lures him upstairs and then throws herself at him. What? She seems offended by his obsession with Sarah when she was right there and had been the whole time. Chris rejects her, which almost sends her into a meltdown, but then she remembers glamoring. She shifts into Sarah, a perfect illusion of her. Chris is drunk and enthralled, so he can't tell the difference and doesn't care enough to ask why Sarah's suddenly wanting to jump his bones. The rest of the witch crew arrive to interrupt Nancy, following Sarah's lead. When Sarah steps into the room, Chris is 
dumbfounded and scared. He realizes that Nancy isn't just goth chick witch anymore. She's a witch witch. Nancy tells him that his beloved Sarah is also a witch and one who put a spell on him to make him love her. Chris asks Nancy why would she even care? Another victim in this narrative that seems completely oblivious to the reason for their punishment. Sarah is trying to de-escalate the situation, but it's just not working. Nancy says that Chris needs to be punished because he tried to hurt Sarah, but Chris calls Nancy jealous and Nancy fucking loses it. She tears into Chris that he's nothing, that he doesn't exist, that he's shit. He treats women like whores, but he's the whore. He stammers out a like politician level apology, not because he means it or understands his wrongdoings, but probably because Nancy is literally floating at him across the floor. Nancy does not accept his apology. She ends his life. He tumbles out of the window behind him onto the pavement below. So now the story is at the turn. Something terrible has happened. We have to take some time aside to process this loss. This is a point of failure for the main character. So we see Sarah grieving for Chris later out of guilt. Her dad is trying to console her, but there's no way he knows exactly how responsible for Chris's death she is. She says that maybe he was still a good person beneath it all, which no. A good person doesn't do the things Chris did before he was enthralled. Even if it was out of insecurity, he may not have deserved death, but he wasn't a good person. Like, imagine this guy let loose on a college campus. At this point, there's a sudden dynamic shift in the coven. Everything that she feared is true. The worst has happened. Her magic caused someone's death. And then she learns that she is, once again, friendless. When Sarah tries to work magic on Nancy with a binding spell to keep Nancy from hurting anyone else, Sarah is visited by nightmarish visions of the witches, cackling and taunting her. They corner her the next day in school and tell her that she's betrayed the coven and needs to die because of it. They don't need her anymore. They have Nancy, a vessel of Manon. And now we have reached the all is lost moment. Not having anywhere else to go and not knowing what to do, Sarah retreats to the bookstore. The shopkeeper is so knowledgeable and maternal that Sarah instinctively seeks her out. The shopkeeper tells Sarah that she's the strongest witch she's ever met and that in fact, her mother was also a witch. She can sense that, can sense Sarah's mother trying to protect her. The shopkeeper tells Sarah to embrace her natural gifts and to bolster herself with the power of Manon by invoking the spirit. That curtained place in the bookstore is actually a powerful temple. She and Sarah begin the ritual, but Sarah is run off by a vision of the shop exploding. Nancy, Bonnie, and Rochelle are ramping up their attack. Frightened by this, Sarah runs all the way home. There, the coven catches up with her. They tell her that her parents are dead, that she's all alone now, and that she must want to die too. Nancy speaks every fear in Sarah's heart. She tells her that she killed Chris, that she killed her mom because she died in childbirth. She plagues Sarah with visions of snakes and bugs surrounding the house, filling every room, psychologically terrorizing her. By this point, the witches are powerful enough to literally fly, and they hover in Sarah's living room as Nancy calls her weak, pathetic, and even mocks her when she cries. 
Sarah runs upstairs to try to stem the bleeding and collapses. It seems hopeless. They aren't going to let her live through the night. This leads directly into the final battle and climax. Our hero is down, but not out. She faces a decision and has to face her fears, has to face herself and embrace it all and act. The coven tensely waits for Sarah to die. When Rochelle refuses Nancy's order to go and check on Sarah, Nancy snaps that she'll cut her throat if she doesn't. Bonnie drags Rochelle upstairs with her. Sarah's not dead yet. She's laid out on the bathroom floor, fading in and out, weakly trying to call the coroners. Remember, it took all four of them to invoke this spirit before. When she hears Dumb and Dumber coming up the stairs, she whispers a little spell that calls back to the 3x3 rule. The girls catch their reflections in a mirror and are horrified. Bonnie's scars are back, but they also cover her face this time. Rochelle's scalp is patchy and bald. They rush down the stairs, past Nancy, and into the night. They're out. It's just Sarah and Nancy now. Sarah gets serious about the invocation, guided by her mother's whispered encouragement. It's time for the boss fight. And it's an excellent magic fight. No glowing hands and swirling CGI lights shooting out of people's palms. Just creepy, magical, psychological gags like Nancy's fingers turning into snakes as cockroaches pour from her sleeves. There's a wind tunnel effect that perfectly captures the force of Nancy's rage, and it's just the right amount of effects for the movie. Sarah is willing to let Nancy go. She's got the power of Manon inside herself now, and Manon is pretty pissed about Nancy's abuse of his power. Nancy wants to just apologize and leave, but Sarah isn't going to let her leave without binding Nancy from doing magic. This magic that has been Nancy's only source of power. It's the one thing that she wanted. So Nancy flips and tries to kill Sarah, but Sarah kicks Nancy's ass and binds her as she lay unconscious. Now we're at the conclusion. Some days after this has all gone down, we see Bonnie and Rochelle show up to Sarah's house with some fake-ass apologies, but they're really there to see if Sarah still has any magic, because they don't. Sarah blows them off, and they have the audacity to be like, <laughs> she probably doesn't have any powers anyway, lol. But they're really fucking wrong. Sarah calls down some lightning out of a clear blue sky to show them that, yes, she has power. But she isn't going to abuse it and live out psychopathic fantasies like Nancy did. Because Nancy now lives in a mental institution, strapped to a bed and heavily medicated, talking about how she used to have magical powers and used to be able to fly. What I like about the writing of the craft is that it uses very concise setups to tell the story. Because they keep paying off as the stakes continue to rise, every action is in service to the setup and the character arcs follow their continued reaction to the rising stakes. Sarah and Nancy both have full transformative arcs. Nancy obviously has a negative arc and Sarah has a positive one. Rochelle and Bonnie do have arcs, but they're not as transformative. They're not really shown to have learned their lesson. And while they're in a better off position than at the beginning of the film, there's no real redemption for them. Not that there has to be. I will say also that most of the characters in this movie have an I don't know what I did to deserve this problem. 
But I think that's just how selfish people are. They have no awareness that they do deserve for bad things to happen to them. So I'm not sure if it's good or bad writing because the concept is solid, but the execution makes it seem like these people are just baffled as opposed to genuinely recognizing that, yes, I do bad things, but no, I don't deserve punishment. You'd really need both for it to be satisfying, and you get that with Rochelle and Bonnie, but everyone wants Sarah to really punish them at the end, not just scare them. I also think that they should have gone totally mean girls and shown Sarah with some decent human beings as friends at the end, but whatever. She's probably still wrapped up in the murder investigation because there would, there would be one, right? All right, so let's talk about girl power. Anytime there's a movie with a woman-dominated cast, people will call it a female empowerment movie. While it's not always wrong, it sure as shit isn't always right. Because the craft is less, girls can do it too, and more about the reflexive desire of the oppressed to become the oppressive force. Not to end the oppression, but to reenact it with themselves as the oppressor. I've talked in a different episode about a very specific woman fantasy about being so badass that you're stronger than any man you meet. Like uh, Charlie from Long Kiss Goodnight, or Charlize Theron and whatever she's in, or Zoe Saldana and whatever she's in. That's a reasonable level of self-empowerment. But the craft says, no, us girls are just as bad and scary as any scumbag out there, and we can be worse. That's not a positive direction to go in. We are the weirdos, mister. Should not hit as hard as it does. Uh, women shouldn't have to feel that I not only want to be powerful enough to not be fucked with, I want to be powerful enough to scare people. The craft definitely accomplishes that outcast feeling and that desire that if only there was something you could do, independently of all the things weighing you down, poverty, loneliness, insecurity, injustice, and have it actually make a tangible difference in your life. They got together, pulled their magic, made all of their problems go away. That's the fantasy. The reality is that in the end, their own corruption pushed them past I want to love myself and I want to not hate others even when they hate me, to humiliating, killing, and severely punishing others. So no, I don't think that the craft is about girl power. I think it's about power, period. And don't be fooled about Nancy's diatribe against Chris. It wasn't a get him girl moment. Her rage towards Chris was about his repeated rejection of her. He held power over her that way and she hated it. She didn't punish him because he almost raped Sarah. She doesn't give a shit about Sarah. It's not feminist that she threw an asshole out of a window. It's not feminist because they're women. It's a character-led story that has women in it dealing with mostly non-gendered issues of power. So is it option B? About toxic friend groups. Kind of. It's definitely a theme, but I wouldn't call it the main metaphor. You are who you hang with isn't the main force behind the narrative. We see that Chris is just like his dipshit friends and Marsha's birds of a feather giggle away at her racism, but Sarah isn't like the rest of her coven. The shopkeeper literally points that out. Sarah gets dragged into a friend group where there is some obvious codependency going on, but we never see any sort of corruption of Sarah. She doesn't go toxic and then reel back. 
Bonnie and Rochelle are completely codependent, and Nancy is the warm little center they revolve around, which she loves because she loves power. Rochelle is... You know what? Let's, let's have that little talk about Rochelle. Rochelle is the token black character that 1996 didn't know what to do with. There. I said it. She is hardly ever referenced in the third person. In most scenes, she's just kind of there. She's getting the very least out of everyone. Sarah's getting Chris to be her love slave. Nancy got a whole new life. Bonnie got a whole new body, practically. And Rochelle made someone else's hair fall out. And I know that Marsha was being racist, but Marsha is not shown to have learned her lesson. She's shown to be punished, but what does Rochelle really get from that? In the scene where Nancy is driving her new car all fast through traffic and the girls are whooping and hollering, I get Nancy. She's newly powerful and rich. I get Bonnie. She says she spent a good part of her life as a monster, and now that she's not, she wants to have some fun. Sarah isn't having a good time. But what does Rochelle get out of this? We don't see her life, so we don't see her improve in any way. We never see Rochelle's parents. When she opens the door in the middle of the night, no one's home. Her whole witch crew showed up and not even a glimpse of an adult. We see everyone else's parents, not Rochelle. The scene where they go to the house party, Marcia actually comes up to Rochelle and it looks like they're gonna start talking, but the scene is cut, gone. The scene is supposed to be Marcia apologizing in some way and it's cut from the story. And I wonder if it's because they didn't know how to arc her character. They couldn't have her be redeeming racist Barbie in one scene and then hunting down Sarah in the next, right? What they should have done is have Marsha apologize. Uh, she wouldn't be apologizing because she's not racist anymore. She just wants her hair back and she's willing to apologize to Rochelle to get it. Rochelle should have told her that that's what she gets for being racist along with her little rat friends and that it's less than what she deserves. Marsha can go run away to her little clucks of friends and Rochelle can have a moment, just a flicker of remorse because she didn't want to destroy this girl. She just wanted to be left alone. Bonnie could catch that look on Rochelle's face and say, you know she deserves it, right? And Rochelle could say, no, she deserves worse. And then they can laugh and go upstairs, which ties us back to toxic friend groups. While it's an element of the craft, I wouldn't write a thesis on it. What I do believe is that the craft isn't about outcasts and weirdos, it's about trauma and how we process traumatic experiences. We are introduced to the characters by their traumas. Bonnie was horribly burned in a childhood fire. Nancy is characterized as a slut to show her as being socially undesirable. And Rochelle isn't mentioned at all. These girls aren't just outsiders, they're trauma victims. Bonnie's physical scars have left her with deep psychological scars as well. She's terribly insecure. Rochelle is dealing with someone being an out loud, in her face, full on racist, complete with a loyal minion. There's even a hint that their swim coach is aware that Marsha bullies Rochelle and isn't doing anything about it. Probably another subplot that was cut. Sarah tried to kill herself. Her mother died giving birth to her and she's never felt like she fit in anywhere. This isn't just a girl clique. They're not just 90s dorks and dweebs and wannabes. 
They have serious problems and are each trying to deal with their trauma in different ways. Witchcraft is just the avenue that they've chosen to channel their energy through, but what each of them wants is to be healed of their trauma. The setups eagerly identify the traumas, and while a book could have filled out the characters a bit more, especially Rochelle, for a script, each setup was absolutely clear as to what the goal was. The way the craft handles the trauma isn't about wallowing in it either. We see a clear progression of how each girl processes her trauma. They begin by commiserating. Their issues are what brings them together. If Chris hadn't turned on Sarah and had been the friend that she very much wanted, Sarah wouldn't have gone back to the coven. It's when she finds that she doesn't fit into the social fabric that she's been pushed out, that she's drawn back into the witch club. In a way, being around other people dealing with issues forces her to confront her own. Now, the witches. They've been commiserating for a while and getting nowhere because wallowing in your trauma but not doing anything about it or being able to do anything about it is unhealthy and offers zero progress. Then along comes Sarah. The craft presents Sarah as someone who is naturally intuitive, has a moral code, and readily faces her issues with self-reflection and self-governance. She has healthy coping mechanisms that allow her to channel her energy in a positive way. With her energy added to their coven, they begin the process of healing. When they do their first spells, each of them are hopeful, kind, and well-intentioned, except Nancy. Nancy, who has already chosen how she's going to deal with everything that's gone wrong in her life. She's going to get powerful, and she's going to use force. She's going to make the world pay and has no qualms about making people suffer. They are polar opposites of how people deal with trauma. And let's get one thing straight about trauma. It sucks. There's no, well, it was kind of a good thing because this other good thing came out of it. No, the good thing is good. The bad thing is bad. One does not justify the other. It's like the portion of society that thinks being poor will make people work harder because they have more to gain and more to prove. Poverty is violence, and being subject to poverty is traumatic, and while magic may be neither good nor bad, all trauma is bad. When it comes to what's in the heart of the witch, what a person can control, is how one reacts to trauma. Nancy is full of rage. It's understandable rage. The craft shows you bad things happening to bad people, and you know that it's wrong, but you can't help but feel that, yeah, they deserve it. That's how Nancy sees everything. She justifies every cruel thing she does. The snake guy was gonna hurt Sarah. Was he? Chris tried to attack Sarah. Yeah, but we all know he's enthralled beyond his power. Sarah believes that everyone can be redeemed. She feels guilt over her part in the harm being done. She's willing to give everyone a chance to do the right thing. She confronted Chris and asked why he lied about her. Her spell against Marsha Brady only worked because Marsha continued to do harm to Rochelle. In the end, she only binds Nancy so that she can't hurt anyone. As the stakes rise and the girls start getting what they think they want, a reflexive apathy sets in for the rest of the coven. After so much suffering, they are getting what they feel they deserve and fuck everyone else. Nancy's line, it's fun, it's scary, who gives a shit, should be the millennial Gen Z anthem. A little relief 
can reveal just how much of a burden you're carrying. A little relief when you're on the edge of trauma can make you want to throw it all to the wind. Who gives a shit? Why keep it all together? Why care? It's fun. It's scary. Who gives a shit? Of course, that's not the healthy response, and it's why Sarah shrinks back from them as they're all cackling in the face of death as Nancy runs a red light. Seeing active, frantic apathy, a cackling, mad, no-fucks-given apathy, might make you shrink back if you're trying to actually get things right in the world. In the long run, following that instinct to be self-reflective and self-possessed, to be kind over being cruel, and not ever being afraid to be firm about staying on the right path or getting back on it even if you've slipped up, that's the path to healing. It's the path to true innate power, and it's the path out of the mouth of madness. If I could give this movie 10 stars and a hug and read tarot cards with it all night, I would, should, and have. The Craft was and continues to be one of my absolute favorites. The magic in it feels real, the escalation of the story is appropriate, and it manages to remain in the realm of the reasonable while still being dark and enticing. It's a perfect rainy night watch, although more than not I have it playing while I'm writing and editing. The next time you want to call the corners, Get out your crystals and your black lipstick and sink into the craft. Alright, so what do you think about the craft? I know that there's a, there's a remake, right? Like a show, maybe? And I should watch it. I, I really should, so I can compare it to this one. But I already know that they can't beat the aesthetic of this movie. It's just so... It's gritty in a real way. Like, nothing feels glossy. Like, even the popular kids in the high school are just wearing khaki uniform parts. You know? Like, no one's shiny. And I feel like that's how most everything new is. Like, very groomed and colorful. And the craft is just so delightfully muted and moody. Uh, which makes sense if you're thinking about it in terms of like processing trauma instead of just wish fulfillment. There's only one scene I can think of in the movie that's brightly colored and it's when they're all first together doing those like really innocent spells together and they're outside and the butterflies show up and it's just like oh wow look you're on the path of healing and then like they fucking hard right out of the path of healing into the path of madness and you know dealing with their trauma in a negative way. But the movie is very, has a mood, is a mood, as the children say. But if there is a better explanation for what the craft is, besides it being about trauma, if I'm just completely overlooking a central theme that just cracks this baby wide open, please let me know. Uh, you can find this as a blog post on my website, sashakio.com. Go to blogs and go to reviews. You'll see that I do review other supernatural movies and that I'm a writer. My book, Oath of a Viking, will be out in June 2022. Follow me on social media. On Twitter, I am sasha.keo. On Instagram, I am sasha underscore keo. If you like talking about supernatural movies, then you'll want to catch up on my other episodes and subscribe to this podcast, I post once a week. Thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me a listen. Uh, please like and share, tell people about it, and tune back in. But until next time, this is Supernatural Movie Machine. I am your host, Sasha Keo, and I will catch you later. <laughs>